If you have a Bible, uh, open up to 2 Samuel chapter 13. Nathan has so graciously already read some of the passage for us. And uh, dark and difficult it is. And we're going to read, I'll be preaching from the whole chapter, but I'm going to read to you verses 15 through 22 here in just a moment. Uh, 15 through 22 of 2 Samuel chapter 13. And as you're opening up there, um, let me say how grateful I am uh, that you're here and what a wonderful Christmas season we have, what a wonderful new year we've begun. And uh, thanks, uh, Lydia's not in here. She just stepped out to go to kids worship. But let me just say thank you for your generous giving, not only to the church, but also to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And I'm overwhelmed by God's grace through your generosity. So thank you so much for uh, your willingness to give in those ways. Well, if you have your Bibles open there, 2 Samuel chapter 13, uh, we're going to be reading verses 15 through 22. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 13, verses 15 through 22. And if you would, please stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. The author writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God Himself is speaking to us. Beginning verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. And he called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So a servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Let's pray together. Oh God, open our hearts and minds to receive your word. And God, we pray in so receiving it, we would see sin for what it is. Oh God, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. So said the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 12, the previous chapter, verse 11. And he was speaking this judgment over David and over David's house because of the sin which David had committed with Bathsheba. Not only had he committed adultery with Bathsheba, but on top of that, he had uh, connived in such a way that he had her husband, Uriah the Hittite, murdered. And so this king after God's own heart had brought sin and disrepute into the house which God was building 
for him. In fact, this was not the first time Nathan had talked to David about building a house or about his house. Back in 2 Samuel 7, we're introduced. 2 Samuel 7 tells the story of the Davidic covenant, God's commitment to David. Perhaps you'll remember David had set out to build a house for the Lord. And Nathan had said, go for it. And then he came back after receiving a vision and said, no, it's not for you to build a house. God's going to do this and this and this for you. Notice what else he says in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God said this, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now the house David wanted to build for God was a temple, but the house that the Lord was to build for David was a dynasty. There is a promise of a son, one who would come after David. And so all of these factors figure prominently into the sordid tale to which we turn our attention today. In this passage here, in the very end of chapter 12 and here in 13, we begin to see the unraveling of the house of David, the decline. We've seen the rise of the kingship of David. Now we see the decline of David's kingship. Things don't look bright and sunny for the king throughout the rest of this book. Do you see then? Think about this. In just a few chapters of the Bible, this thing which was such a sign of the blessing of God, well, will still be so, but yet it's changed. David's house that God is building for him. Do you see how quickly this house, this rich blessing of God, is turning into a curse? Out of evil. I mean, out of your own house, evil will rise up against you. Evil out of David's own house. Even the richest blessings of God are soured by sin. You see, that which God had given David as a blessing is now being corrupted and nearly destroyed by the sin which David has brought into it. In fact, when Nathan confronted David about his sin, what David said was that the man who stole the lamb deserved to die and that he ought to restore the loss of that lamb. You know, I don't know if you guys remember this or not, but the, the way that Nathan confronted David about his sin was very creative. He uh, invented a story about a man stealing a ewe lamb and slaughtering it uh, to be killed. And, and David, in his anger, said, that man ought to die and he ought to restore the lamb fourfold to, that, to the one to which, from which he stole it. Well, Nathan tells David that his life will be spared. But here... In this narrative and the chapter before and in the ensuing narrative, we see the way that David fulfills his own requirement. This evil that is rising up against him out of his own house is him fulfilling his own requirement. I don't know if it's ironic. I don't know if it's inadvertent. I'm not... I'm not sure uh, all the connections that we should draw here, but the reality is that there is a fourfold punishment fourfold loss for David. First, as we've already seen in chapter 12, the loss of the baby uh, that was conceived with Bathsheba. But then the evil in and on the lives of Amnon, Tamar, and Absalom, including the life of that baby, that you see this fourfold restitution that's being required of David. Here's, here's, here's where we are. This chapter and the next few weeks, I'm just going to tell you guys, um, you're going to be ready for Easter when it gets here. Good Sermon on the Resurrection. Uh, we're going to take a bleak look. Uh, 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 we're going to stare into the bleak, 
dismal reality of what sin really is. We're going to take a look. We're going to square up with the reality of sin today. I'm going to show you three truths about sin this morning from this passage. Nothing, nothing in the world has ever had a better PR department than sin. Nothing has ever uh, been able to make itself seem like it's good, quite like sin. But this morning, I hope the Bible will cut through the fog of sin and help you see it for what it is. This this morning, we're going to look at three truths that will help expose the reality of sin. And I hope it will lead you to respond to the grace of God in repentance and faith today. Here's the first point about sin today. Sin escalates. Sin escalates. I want you to see the story with me for just a moment. We open in chapter 13 with David's oldest son, Amnon, saying he loved Tamar. Now as the story progresses, I think it will become clear to us that it's not a genuine love that he has, it's a lust. Though one might could see the way, if it was a genuine love, the way his own sins spoiled even the love. But it seems to me the best way to understand this would be that he seemingly loves Tamar. It looks like he loves Tamar. He literally becomes lovesick. He makes himself sick, pining uh, for Tamar. And so his crafty friend, your translation may say, may seem wise. Um, that's wisdom being used in a morally negative sense. It's rare in the Bible, but here it's certainly the case. A crafty friend, I think, is a good way to understand it. He comes up with a plan to get Tamar close to Amnon. Let me say this about sin. You can always find someone who will help you sin. You see this over and over in the Bible. I've seen it over and over in so many people's lives. You can always find somebody who will give you advice that sin will make you happy. Uh, Those people are not your friends. At the very best, they're mistaken. They may mean well, but they're mistaken. Sin will not make anything better. So, uh, Jonadab crafts the plan and Amnon enacts the plan. He asks the king... When the king comes to visit him because he's so sick, if Tamar can come and prepare food for him. He requests a couple of cakes. This word is only used here in the Bible, and it's really tightly related to the word for heart. So uh, it almost feels like Amnon is sort of giving some clues here because one translator translates this, heart-shaped cakes. Valentine's Day is coming up. Will you bring me some heart cookies? Uh, to help me feel better, Tamar. So when Tamar brings in the food, Amnon sends everyone out. Now, for anyone who's familiar with the story or familiar with these sorts of stories, or frankly, God forbid, anyone who's experienced a situation like this, we begin to see the room growing darker and darker. We begin to see the telltale signs of what Amnon plans to do. Here's what I want you to understand. I want to be so careful and delicate as we talk about this because the last thing we would ever want to do is cause anyone here any undue stress or harm. But we cannot shy away from the wickedness here. And this is one of the things that the Bible... uh, Some folks tend to act like the Bible has nothing to say about the great issues of the day, but when it comes to sexual abuse and particularly the way uh, that women can be treated in many contexts, the Bible is absolutely clear that God hates it. And the author of Samuel is here making it very clear that God hates what's happening here. He sees it as evil 
and wickedness. The first thing Amnon does is he propositions Tamar. One of the most beautiful things I think that God does in this dark, dark passage is give Tamar a voice. A voice of wisdom and, frankly, a voice of righteousness. You see what Tamar says to him when he tries to get her to come to bed with him? No, my brother, verse 12. Do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. This is something equivalent to calling someone a pagan. Someone who is devoid of the wisdom of God. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Intermarriage of this sort was forbidden, but I suppose Tamar's last get grasp at not being violated here in this moment was to at least suggest perhaps, perhaps David would allow us to get married. Verse 14 makes it very clear, very plain what happened. Amnon overpowers her, being stronger than her, and he violates her. He forces himself on Tamar. This is unquestionable a way the Bible is describing what we would call rape. And it's a horrible, violent, awful sin before the Lord. And immediately, Amnon changes. Immediately, Amnon's fake love, his lust, immediately turns to hatred. The thing he says to her is essentially two words in Hebrew. It's get up and go. Get out of here. It's violent and angry language. It's cruel the way he's treating her and then again the bible gives tamar a voice it records what she said no my brother verse 16 for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me but he would not listen to her and to add insult to injury quite literally he calls his young man who serves him and says put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her And then she leaves, weeping and mourning as she goes. What we see here is the escalation of lust, don't we? What begins with David and Bathsheba, David lusting after Bathsheba and uh, taking her, for lack of a better word, escalates in the next generation. His son Amnon, clearly a spoiled prince, a man without scruples, a man who's passionate, um, yet whose passion does not have corresponding responsibility, uses his sister. Sin escalates. When sin is normalized in one generation, it escalates in the next. When sin is normalized in one situation, it escalates in the next. You know, there's a reason why um, you make sure your candles are blown out at night. There's a reason why you don't leave a pile of oily rags in your garage. There's a reason we've got a gas stove at home. There's a reason why we try to always make sure that all the, uh, the, the knobs are turned all the way shut and closed. We don't want gas leaking out in our house. There's a reason why you're careful with a pan full of hot grease. Why, if it starts to get a little flame to it, you don't go throw water on it. Why? It's because fire escalates, doesn't it? One little match, one little spark can turn your whole life, your whole world upside down. There's a reason why we're careful with fire. And there's a reason why we ought to be careful when it comes 
to sin. Sin escalates. We ought to be more careful with sin than we are with fire. We ought to be so careful, so wise, so desperate to be sure that we're not playing fast and loose with sin. Sin escalates. And even more specifically, let me say this. I think it would be irresponsible not to talk about this in the culture and society we live in, in the moment we live in, and the passage at hand. Sexual sin in particular escalates. We can see it in so many ways. The way sexual sin in our culture and society has escalated. What, what was once the summer of love, what was once free love and sexual liber- liberation opened up the Pandora's box. Sexual sin that we see ourselves living in today. Let me mention just by a point of application one way that we can fight sexual sin in the church, Lord's church. And I know this might be unsatisfying to some folks because they want more of a culture war answer or something like that. But let me just say this. One of the simplest ways we can do this, dads, is in the way we talk about and treat women in our homes. Um, the way we treat our wives and the way we talk about women in our homes are the way our boys will treat their wives and the way they'll talk about women in their homes. One, one cardinal sin in the Alexander household is talking back to mama. You can talk back to me ten times where you can talk back to mama once. And uh, we just don't, we don't tolerate it in our home. It's how our daughters will expect to be treated. And, and so we have to be so careful in the way we talk about and treat women. And you might say, well, pastor, what does that have to do with sexual sin? Well, listen, my friends, if Amnon had not been raised in a home where women were treated like objects to obtain. And that's exactly what David did. People talk about the Bible um, you know, I don't want to have a biblical marriage. All these people in the Old Testament have multiple wives and everything else. If you read the Old Testament, you can see the way that men obtaining for themselves multiple wives is viewed by the authors of the Bible as a bad thing. And, and here we can see it. The way David was able to just add, add another wife to the group of wives in Bathsheba. And Amnon's raised in that sort of home. And though David had a check in his life on some of these things, it deteriorates over time. Sin escalates over time. So the way we speak about women in our homes can easily turn into the way our sons and daughters think women ought to be treated. Uh, Ideas and words have consequences. Uh, Friends, let me say this. Don't forget this. Sin escalates. Sin escalates. It's very rare that there's just a one-time sin. Little white lies turn into big, bold lies. Be careful with sin. Not only does it escalate, second of all, sin multiplies. Sin multiplies. 20 and 22 give us a little, 20 through 22 give us a little snapshot of the way this singular sin has impacted three people. Tamar is a desolate woman now, and she went to live in Absalom's house. Whatever hope of a normal life, or the life at least that she expected to have, whatever that was, was robbed from Tamar by Amnon's actions. Not only has she been violated, that's a sin enough. On top of that now, she's unable to marry. Now whether that's just or not is, is not for us to talk about right now. It's just the way things were at this point in time. Second of all, Absalom, Tamar's brother, responds to Tamar, but he's sort of eerily calm, isn't he? I feel like he might respond a little bit more. 
But as we'll learn, he's simply biding his time. And David is loud enough. Everybody knows he's angry, but he really doesn't do anything to pursue justice. And so here you can see the way that an absence of righteousness, an absence of a willingness to do what's right, first Amnon, to at least try to do what's right by his sister. Uh, Then, second of all, Absalom, who is quietly waiting to pursue vigilante justice. And David, who is angrily talking about how angry he is, but unwilling to pursue biblical righteousness. All these people leave a gap here. And in this gap, sin has already escalated, and now sin begins to multiply. Absalom begins to show his true colors. He shows some of the first signs of shrewdness, which will come to full fruition later in our story. Here he hatches a plan for revenge. A few years later. At first, a sheep shearing was a major social event. I think we've talked about this before in a previous passage. And so he invites the king and all the king's sons, all of his brothers, to attend this sheep shearing, knowing that at this party it would be a good opportunity to take care of his brothers. But the invitation for David is simply a ruse. The the king refuses. Absalom uh, refuses to go. Absalom invites him again. And David says again, no, I'm not going to do it. This is sort of a a, a similar parallel to David not going out to fight battles. Again, this is showing that David is taking on more and more of a sedentary lifestyle. He's angry uh, and won't commit justice. And now he won't go to the sheep shearing either. Yet Absalom, being shrewd, is using all of this as a brilliant cover. You see, it gives him cover to then ask for Amnon to go. Be impolite at this point for David to just keep denying requests. So he says, sure, why do you need Amnon? Okay, fine, he can go. And the other of the king's sons went. So Amnon and the king's sons go with Absalom, but David doesn't. And and Absalom, having invited the king, sort of provides some cover for what he plans to do to Amnon. You see, David's sin of lust escalated in his son Amnon. And his ability to be conniving, his ability to work the system, his ability to work behind the scenes escalates in his son Absalom, resulting again in murder. Absalom, there at the sheep shearing expedition, ensures that a perverted justice for his sister Tamar was carried out on Amnon. And here we see, again, sin multiplies. Sin multiplies. Sin never sits still. Sin is restless. There's never a moment where sin won't start multiplying. You have to stay after it. It never stays alone. It's restless. One sin begets another. And here we can see the why that sin is multiplying because one sin leads to another sin. And I think that's something we have to remember. One sin tends to lead to another, and not always of the same kind. One sin tends to sin result in a sinful response. I don't know about you, but it's rare that someone sins against me, or even doesn't sin against me, is just, let's just say, mildly unkind to me. And my initial gut level response is, I should be gracious and kind right now. Right? Have you ever had a short word with your spouse before? Just been a little more terse than you should? Has your spouse ever been a little more terse with you than they should? Your first response is always, I'm sure they're just having a tough day, right? No, what do you say? I see how it's going to be today. All right. So you can play at this game. Isn't that right? We can take care of this. And then you respond in an unkind way, in a sinful way. 
And they say, why are you being mean to me? And you say, well, what about you? How about how you're acting? And that's a small example, right? This is a big example, but the reality is, and we can all see it, we all know it, sin multiplies. Remember this as well. More sin is never the solution to sin. I told you this earlier. Sin has the best PR program in the world. And nothing feels more right. Nothing feels more natural. Nothing feels like it's going to fix things quite like adding some more sin to the pile when sin gets involved. I never want to respond with righteousness, but it's the way to go, my friends. We have to cut the head off the snake if we're going to expect ourselves to have any sort of victory over sin. Sin escalates. Sin multiplies. And hear the word of the Lord, my friends. Sin destroys. Sin destroys. By the end of 2 Samuel chapter 13, I want you to think about where everyone is. All this cast of characters, where they are. Tamar is living a desolate life in the house of her brother. What life she expected to have has been stolen from her by Amnon's sin. Amnon, the king's oldest son, and what would that mean? His presumptive heir is dead. One wonders if one of the reasons why David wouldn't mete out any sort of justice on Amnon was the fear of the loss of an heir. And yet, that's exactly what happens when Absalom, his brother, carries out vigilante justice on him. And what has Absalom done? The Bible Bible tells us that he has fled to Geshur. And then David, the king, is mourning. And little does he know that his troubles are only beginning. Verses 37, 38, and 39. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. And in all of this turmoil, we're reminded, I think we can hear the voice of the Lord echoing in the background. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Friends, God doesn't lie. God means what He says. And from the very beginning, God has never lied to us. God has always been truthful with us. And do you remember do you remember the first casualties of sin's PR program? It was in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? When our first parents had a diabolical snake whisper in their ears, you will be like God. But what had God said? God had been truthful, hadn't he? You will die if you eat of it. God told them what sin would do. That sin would bring death into the world. And yet they listened to the snake instead. And what happened? I can drive you all over this city today to multiple cemeteries and graveyards where people have died. That's what happens. We don't listen to the Lord. 
And here you hear the word of the Lord. The sword will not depart from your house. I will raise evil up against you out of your own house. God told David what sin does, what the consequences from sin are, and God means what He says. And I want to tell you something today, my friends. Sin destroys. Sin will leave a wake of destruction in its path. And I want to tell you multiple times in my life, I've had a front row seat to the destruction that sin brings into the world. Not only in my own life, not only in the life of others, but not only in my pastoral life, we can see it all over the place. The way sin does not keep the promises it makes. It leaves a wake of destruction in its path. And today, I want to encourage you to treat sin like fire. Treat sin like a rattlesnake. Drop it. Get rid of it. Don't mess with it. It multiplies. It destroys. It escalates. It won't stop where you think it will stop. My friends, it's true. And some of us now might look at this and say, goodness gracious, what can we even do? What hope is there in the world? I mean, you've just given us this diagnosis. We're all sinners. And you say it's going to escalate. You, you say sin's going to multiply. And you say sin's going to destroy. What in the world are we supposed to do? It does. Sin escalates. It does. Sin multiplies. It does. Sin destroys. But sin is not Lord. Sin does not have the final word. Sin, in fact, is nothing but a perversion of God's good gifts. I want to tell you something, my friends. Sin is not Lord, but Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is Lord. And He offers our only hope for sin. He, the Bible says, who knew no sin became sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. There is hope for sinners. We sang it so beautifully earlier, didn't we? Christ receiveth sinful men. You might say, sin's got a chokehold on me. It's like weeds in my life. It's like kudzu my heart. I can't cut it back enough. I can't get rid of it. There is only one person who can fix it. There's only one person who can deliver you from the curse of sin. There's only way that the consequences, the eternal consequences of sin, can be de- you can be delivered from those in your heart and life. And that is through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, my friends, I want you to turn your heart to the one who died on the cross for you. God kept David on the throne. God preserved David's house despite their sin in order that he might put a son of David named Jesus Christ on the throne forever. Would you trust him today? Would you turn from your sin and turn to God by his grace through faith today? I hope you will. I want to offer an invitation today. If you've never trusted Jesus for the first time, I want to offer you the opportunity today. And it doesn't have to be here. It can be home later today, but I don't want to encourage you to delay. I believe with all my heart, if you will turn from your sins and repentance and turn to God in faith through Jesus, you will be saved. I believe with all my heart. If you need someone to talk to or pray with this morning, I'll be waiting on you after this song in just a moment. Second of all, 
Uh, you may be a believer and you just need some time to do business with the Lord. That's what this time is for. That's what this place is for. That's what I'm here for. If you need someone to talk to, I'd love to talk to you either during this invitation or after the service today. Finally, you may be looking for a church home. What a joy it would be for me today to talk to you about what it means to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, as the song plays, I want to invite you to do business with the Lord. You can come talk to me, you can come to the altar, or you can do business with the Lord right where you are. But no matter who you are, no matter where you are, I want to encourage you to respond to God during this time. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you for Jesus. And God, we thank you for the honesty with which you've talked to us about sin. God, we know you have our best in mind. And Lord, I pray that we would hear your word and trust it by faith today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.